0: John 8, um, 31 to 38, 51 to 59. I want to read that first. And uh, then I want to get into what I want to talk about tonight about Jesus. And the question I'm asking tonight is where is true freedom found? Where is perfect freedom found? I think Jesus has a couple interesting things to say to us. So let's look at it together. John 8, 31 to 38, and then skipping down to 51 to 59. I'm going to read it for us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him... You will be free indeed. Now, I know that you are offering your Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Skip down to 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May I pray for us? Then we'll that in. Let's pray first. us. Jesus, we, I, I praise you and I thank you that you are not afraid to say hard things to us. You are not afraid to make us angry with the truth. You are not afraid to confront us where we need to be confronted. You are not afraid to change our stubborn notions and to mend our broken and addicted hearts. And Lord, I pray as we think about you and and the words that you said to these men who are so like us, so many of us, uh, so many years ago, that you would take these words, um, your words, and you would make them live even as your word is alive. And that you would cut our hearts where we need to be cut and that you would bind up our wounds where we need to be bound. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So one of my favorite kind of stories about an old king, he's actually a Duke, is a story coming out of the 14th century about a guy named Third. III. the Third ruled in what is now Belgium. And he was his, his nickname was Crassus, which means very, very fat man. And his brother, he had a younger brother named Edward, who decided he wanted to take over the kingdom, and so he rebelled against the Third. And he, the way that he did it was... He he took over. He and his men took over the castle, and they took Reynold, and they put him into this room. And it was a room that was a normal sized room with a normal sized door. And he said to him, "Reynold, you are free to leave this room anytime that you want." But what he did was every day he brought a feast to Reynold's room. It was a feast of all, of, of his favorite foods, all kinds of meats, and and you know all kinds of pastries, everything that he loved. And because Randall couldn't resist the food, he literally stayed 10 years and he wasn't able to leave the room. He couldn't fit through the door and he he literally was imprisoned 10 years before he died. And when I think about that story, I think about you and me. Not that maybe food's your thing, maybe it's not, it's definitely part of my story. I could talk talk a long time about Wendy's spicy chicken number six, supersized with Frosty. You've heard me talk about that if you've been around here, which is kind of sad that I talk about that that much. But the thing is, what do we do with our desires? Especially the desires that we know are enslaving to us. The desires and addictions, the struggles that, that we can't not choose, and yet we know in choosing them, we sort of are, are losing our lives bit by bit at a time, like reynold III. And I think Jesus says something here that really, if you're following the passage, it makes people like us. Like, it's, a, it's Tuesday, no classes. I'm assuming you're here. You're pretty committed at some point. And it makes people like us very, very angry. And there are three things I think Jesus says that are confusing and angering. So much that by the end of the passage, after Jesus says them, literally the religious Jews have stones ready to kill Jesus because they cannot stand what he's saying to them. And there are three things that he says that I think are a little bit, that piss us off. That make us mad. That we don't want to hear. And so I just want to look at them tonight briefly with you together. So first, here's what, the first one is this he says this, and it's simple and yet it's offensive. He says, sin enslaves. This is the first thing Jesus says, sin enslaves. What's interesting is sin, when We talk, even saying that word sometimes on campus at USC in 2014, I feel a little bit weird. Because sin feels like a word that is outdated. Like it feels like, like when I say sin, what maybe comes into your mind is the, the preacher that comes on campus and just yells at people and tells them we're all going to hell. And what he's really mad about is that they're, they're not like him. And he wants them to be like him, and we would say, but "Is what he wants what God wants?" And so, sin this idea of sin feels a little bit outdated, or maybe it feels antiquated, or maybe it feels restrictive. And so, we don't love the word. But I think we don't love the word because we we haven't fully understood what Jesus and the Bible mean by it. Because the image Jesus gives here is not, sin is not something; it's not just something outwardly bad that we do. Jesus would say, "Sin is a power in our lives that owns us." And the image he gives the image he gives is fascinating. The image he gives is that of a slave owner in the late 1700s waiting to take us, sell us into slavery, and own us, and make us do things that we should never do. And make us be less than what we should be. The image he gives is actually, it's actually fascinating. Jesus, I think, is drawing from Genesis, what God says about Genesis in Genesis 4, where he says, remember the passage in Cain, where he says to Cain, Listen, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. Sin is a, not simply doing... Bad outward things, things that we shouldn't do. Sin is a powerful presence in our lives. And think about this image that Jesus gives. Think of for a moment what it would feel like to be a slave. Here are a couple of things that, would, that it would feel like. You've ever, Maybe you saw 12 years a slave, which gives this horrific picture of what it was like. Four things I think that are interesting that what they would feel like. Well, number one, you're, you're doing things you don't want to do, and you're not doing things that you want to do. Jesus says sin is like that. Paul actually says sin is like that in Romans 7. That we do the things that we don't want to do and we don't do the things that we know we should do, number one. Number two, you live constantly in fear, worry, resentment, and anger. That's why Jesus in this passage says, listen, the slave slave doesn't stay in the house. The house belongs to the son. To be a slave, to live as a slave is to live constantly in fear, worry, threat of danger, lack of love, bitterness, resentment, anger. Three, you're living beneath the level of a human being that you should be. You're living beneath what you were made to be in God's image. And Number four, there's nothing you can do to set yourself free. There's absolutely nothing you can do to free yourself. And Jesus says that's what sin is like. That's, it's not something you do occasionally. It's, it's a powerful presence always with us that enslaves and makes us do its bidding. It owns us. And it owns us in a way where we have no hope within ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this pisses them off. (laughs) Because they say, if you read the passage, they say, listen, we are the sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Which is actually not true because, like, did they forget the exodus? Did they forget the time in Egypt where they literally were slaves living under Pharaoh's rule? But it makes them really really mad. Listen to what N.T. Wright says, though, about this idea of how we misunderstand sin. Send in your quote, I'm going to read it for us because it was so good. He puts it like this this idea that sin is not something we do occasionally, it's something that owns us. It's a powerful presence that makes us do its bidding. Here's what he says He says, The trouble with saying sin, the trouble with saying that out loud is that many people in the Western world are bored of hearing about sin. They think it just means offenses against someone else's old fashioned morality, often in matters to do with sex. But that's far too small minded of a view. Sexual sins matter, of course, they matter very much. They can destroy a person, a marriage, a family, a community. But there's more to sin than sex, and sin as a whole is far greater than the sum of its parts. When people rebel against God in whatever way, new fields of force—this is fascinating—new fields of force are called into being. A cumulative effect builds up, and individuals and societies alike become enslaved just as surely as if every single one of them wore chains and was hounded to work every day by a strong man with a whip. That's the power of sin in our lives. The way that I was thinking about today— and there, there are going to be two Harry Potter illustrations tonight, which I feel a little bit greedy and or needy. I don't know. But here's the first thing I kept thinking about today. is thinking about the progression of Voldemort through the story. Voldemort grew in power as his servants did his bidding. And the more his servants did his bidding, the more he grew in power. So by the end, he's this powerful force that seems like no one can beat. And as I think about that, that's a picture of sin. If you don't know this about yourself, that you were, you were, Scripture would say something to do you you're born a sinner. There's that something that's always dwelled within you because of the fall, but its power in your life is only increased. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never see your need for Jesus, which is why, literally, these Jews hated him and wanted to kill him. So, first, I want you to see that sin enslaves. It's a powerful presence that enslaves and makes us do its bidding. Second, I you to see, this is the second thing that pisses them off, is Jesus says there's only one way to be free, and it's the truth. Knowing the truth, and Jesus actually says, abiding in my word. He, he, he couples those two together. Abiding in my word is knowing the truth. And when you know the truth, look at what he says, it will set you free. And there are two things, I think, that go against our notion of freedom that Jesus says about the truth. Here's the first. That truth is what sets us free. Again, if, if we've given up on sin, and I think it's this sort of outdated, antiquated notion, we too have given up on this idea of truth. Sometimes I think we think truth is an outdated idea because all truth feels like to us is someone's power play on taking a narrative of a story and working it for their own purposes. This is why I don't know if you're like me, but I, it's hard for me to trust either Fox News or CNN. And so I typically get my news from Colbert Report or or Daily Show or, I mean, something that's, like, funny because I kind of think if they're trying to be funny, they're at least going to give something of the truth instead of putting a spin on it. I don't know if that's how you feel about getting the news or where you get your news from. But this idea is like, we kind of think we're like Pilate, where we say, what is truth? Is there such a thing where we, can we know the truth? Is there a true God? If so, can we know him? Is there a truth about ourselves? Or are we just choosing a narrative in which we like to live? Is there a truth about how life should work? Or are we just sort of make our own meaning and make our own way? It's so definitely, this out for a lot of us, it's an outdated kind of notion that we could know truth, much less that that truth would then set us free. And here's what Jesus says. It's pretty radical. He says, listen, the truth will set you free. Here's three ways that it does. That you can know the truth. Jesus came that we can know the truth. We can know the truth, number one, about ourselves. The story Jesus, t- the truth Jesus tells us about ourselves is fourfold. Number one, we were made by God. Number two, we were made up by God for God. Number three, we're in rebellion against that God. Number four, we're in rebellion against that God because we love ourselves deeply more than him. And Jesus is saying, you can know that. And beginning to put that together can actually give you a deeper knowledge of yourself than you've ever known before and begin to set you free. But first, it's going to piss you off. Two, he's, not only can you know the truth about God, about yourself, you can know the truth about God, Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus would say, I came, I, I came incarnate, the God-man, that you might know the truth about God, who he is, what he's like. And again, there are a couple things that he says that we know, that we can know that God is creator. That we can know that God is Lord and King, that everything bows to him, all of nature, the rocks, Jesus says, cry out. When men aren't praising him, the creation is praising him. The whales and the fish and cocker spaniels and roaches in their own way. And everything in creation is crying out praise to him. But he's also a redeemer. That he's come back for his people. And the fourth thing is that he wins in the end. That's the story that Jesus tells us about the truth about God. And we can know that about him changes it. Because, on the one hand, the God that we make is either a God that's full of love but no truth, or he's full of truth but no love. And Jesus says he brings, the true God brings both of those together. He's not going to shy away from telling you the truth about life, about the way life should be. He's not going to shy but he's not also, he's going to pursue and love. The third thing Jesus says we can know the truth about God's vision for life. That God has told us. If we were to read Psalm 119 tonight, we would know that God has specifically told us there are commandments and ways and guides that God's word to us. Is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It shows us the way that is right and good to live. It shows us that that there is black and white. That there is a way that leads to death. And there is a way that leads to life. That there is a way that that pleases him and there is a way that displeases him. There is a way that he loves and there is a way that he hates. And Jesus is saying, this truth will set you free. But first, this truth is going to piss you off. That's how you know what truth is, by the way. Is it pisses you off a little. What I think about is I think about a friend. So I've I'll, I'll shared before. I was gotten this really bad relationship at the end of high school. that carried on into almost my in my into my sophomore year of college, and I had one friend, faithful friend. And he, he emailed me, which was maybe not so confrontational, but he was the only one of my friends who told me the truth about what I was doing. And he simply said, "This. This is Sammy. I love you. And you're my friend. I want you to know that. Also, you are an idiot." Because you've given up on all of your friendships to pursue this girl, she doesn't even like you that much, and you've isolated all of us. and you should break up with her. And I literally didn't talk to him for a year. <laughs> That's how willing to receive that truth I was. I was like, screw you, friend, former friend, now enemy. You're going to tell me to break up with this girlfriend that I'm going to marry that I didn't marry because she broke up with me like six months later? <laughs> Screw you, my friend. But when I look back on that friend, he's still, I mean, he's in my wedding, he's in my life still. He loved me enough to tell me the truth. And the truth, even though I couldn't hear it, the truth of what he was saying he had the ability to set me free. And I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it. And then finally the Lord prevailed in my life and made it happen. Because he loves me, because he loves us in that way. So first, Jesus says, the truth will substitute. But then the second thing he says is he kind of goes against our notion. And this is why I want you to hear really carefully. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says this. Freedom, Jesus would say, he, puts it, he connects it to abiding in his word. Which means basically, basically what it means to be a Christian is you love to have Jesus tell you what to do. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you love to have Jesus tell you what to do. You no longer get to tell yourself and decide what you're going to do. You love to have Jesus do it. And Jesus says actually freedom is not, we think freedom is the absence of any restraints. Being able the ability to do whatever it is that we want to do, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it, that's what we typically think as Americans in the 21st century, that's what freedom is. But Jesus says that's not freedom. Freedom is actually the presence of the right restraints. Freedom is actually, in other words, freedom is having the right master. Freedom is having the, serving the right master, serving the right thing. And that's what Jesus says that really pisses these Jews off. He says, listen, it's not the ability to do whatever you want, to be whoever you want. It's the power to do what you should do, when you should do it, and to not do what you shouldn't do, when you shouldn't do it. That's freedom. And few of us know that kind of freedom. Few of us know the freedom of the, having the power to always do the right thing. To, to have the freedom of always living in the right way for the right reasons. Jesus says that's what freedom is. And the only way that we have that is, is we, he sets us free by the truth and we begin to abide and listen to him. Two examples that I think about this. First is uh, Dobby, think about Dobby. Uh, Dobby's, what was Dobby's problem? Dobby's problem was he, he had the wrong master. He had Malfoy. Terrible master. And when Dobby got the right master, we got Harry, everything changed. Harry set him free, and then Dobby, it wasn't that Dobby stopped serving and did whatever he wanted, it was that Dobby started serving the right master. Here's the second one that I was thinking of today, too. My son, for his birthday, got a fish. Uh, he's, he's become a fish lover The first one didn't make it Which was a sad moment as a parent When you try to tell your kids why things die And you just sort of lie to them a little bit And they're like fish just don't live very long man Which is not true Fish do live long Because the second one has lived The first one lived 10 days The second one's lived like 6 weeks now He's beginning to put together that his dad is a liar um, But think about where is a fish After we ask this question Where is a fish misfree? free? So here's this, he's got this little fish, and he's, we bought this little fish tank off a TV commercial, and the little fish swims around. It's a tiny, I mean, it's like a tiny little tank. So is the fish free in that tank? Maybe the fish could use a bigger tank. Like, maybe if we've got this big aquarium, the fish could really, like, spread his gills out and swim around <laughs> and just enjoy the place to himself, and then make, but is he free in a bigger tank? No, well maybe we should put him in the ocean, and like he could just swim and swim and swim, but the ocean saw his boundaries, so maybe we should just, you know, the image I have is just take the fish and just, just let him be, just put him on the floor. And then you and I know if we did, if I were to take Asher's fish and just put it under the floor, and be like, go, you're free. Let me free you. And the way that Harry freaked W, you were free, my friend. Run. Run with the wind. You don't really run with wind, but be Free. And we would know the fish would, in a matter of seconds or minutes, die. Freedom is not the absence of any, uh, of any restraints. Freedom is the presence of the right restraints. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know freedom, you have to, abide your, you have to, you have to know me. And not only do you have to know me, you have to give yourself fully to me. And that's where freedom is found. And these religious people, proud religious people, can't receive that. They're too proud to admit that they're enslaved to anything. Oh, how like that is us. Part of your problem tonight is you can't admit your problem, and the deepest problem is you, and your roommate knows that, but you don't know it. And because you don't know it, you don't know truth that frees. You don't know the truth that frees. It says the only way you're going to be free, the only way you're going to be yourself, is to give yourself to Jesus, and then you'll begin to be fully yourself. And this is the third thing he says that really makes him mad. I just want to call it the truth about the truth. What's interesting is they're already mad at what he's been saying to them, that you're enslaved to sin. We're not enslaved. Who are you? And then when he says the truth will set you free, what are you saying? We don't know the truth? Jesus says, no, you don't know me. But then he says something that that takes them over the edge, and it simply does. He's already made these astounding claims, but he makes one that is way bigger. And he literally is taking us back. If you're following the story, he's taking us back to the Exodus story. Because the Exodus story is where God's people were enslaved. The Exodus story is where they needed to be set free. And the Exodus story is where Moses shows up at the burning bush and, and God speaks to him from this bush and says, go free my people. And he says, who will we, who shall I say sent me? And God, for the first time, gives his name. He says, say I am that I am sent me. It's literally Yahweh. It's, a, it's his holy name. It's his, his personal name. As you follow it through the Old Testament, it's a name that, that Jews would never spell out because it was such a precious and holy thing to say they literally would leave out the vowels and just put the consonants, Y-W-H-W-H, and they just wouldn't say it. And Jesus, in this passage, that's what he says. He says, not only did Abraham look forward to my day and worship me, but before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus basically says, and this a drop the mic moment, he says, listen, I am Yahweh. I am one with the God of Exodus. I am one with this God you claim to worship. And what's interesting is, he's basically saying, I am, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I, like, truth is not an abstract idea. Truth is not a moral code. Truth, Jesus is saying, is a person. Because what Yahweh meant, think about that name, I am that I am. I mean, it's a deep thing. God is saying really some profound things. He's saying, before anything ever existed, I was. Nothing, Nothing exists. This is the thing that God says is radical. Nothing exists apart from me. And because nothing exists apart from me, nothing can live or be sustained apart from me. I am the foundation behind everything. I am the truth behind everything. I am the power and the life behind everything. And Jesus says, yep, that's me too. The truth isn't an idea. The truth isn't a moral code. The truth is what Christianity says. The truth is a person. And the beautiful thing is the truth is a person who's come to set you free. And this is the beautiful thing I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus. Is Jesus, and this is what I was thinking about today, Jesus is the most perfectly free human being that ever lived. Why? Because Jesus was not enslaved to sin. Because Jesus never sinned. Like, Jesus literally is the only human being who didn't know the power of sin at work and at play in his life and was bound to it. Jesus was free to love God, to obey God, to, to, to bless and to, to, to love and bless his fellow human beings and friends. And how did Jesus use his Freedom. Jesus used his freedom to rescue us from the slavery of sin and death. And the ultimate place he does that is on the cross, where he literally gives his life, he gives up his ultimate freedom, that he might rescue us from the slavery that we are bound to in sin and death. And I love, I, mean, I don't know if you've seen 12, 12 Years of slavery or not, but it's, it's the Brad Pitt scene at the end. It's, this is a huge spoiler alert, but sorry, it's been like two years now. Um, Solomon North Evans, you've seen the movie? Yeah, this, just ear that if you don't want to hear the spoiler. Solomon Northups, he's he's given the account in you know, the movies about his account of being a slave, being robbed and you know, basically stolen, kidnapped into slavery. And there's this moment, this desperate moment at the end, where he's building this house with this this freed white man who builds houses, who's Brad Pitt's character, and he very sheepishly, very shyly, very hesitantly tells him this story. And he asks him if he could take this letter back to his family, that his family then back to his town. That they could come, that they know who he is, and come and free him, and come take him back to the life that he needs desperately, the life that he misses desperately. And he takes this chance, and Brad Pitt's not sure what he's going to do, but then he does. Brad Pitt takes the letter to his family, and this is—I mean—it's it's an incredibly moving scene where you know he, where, where Solomon Northup is actually freed. But when I think about that, when I think about Brad Pitt's character, I mean, it really is just what Jesus has done for us. He uses his freedom to rescue us from slavery. He uses his freedom. To, to give us He loses his freedom to give us The perfect freedom of the children of God The freedom that Jesus Talks about here where we belong to the house We can never lose The love of God Not because we've ever been worthy of the love of God But because Jesus won, won and earned it for us He brought us into the family by giving up His freedom for us Now how does that begin to change What does this have to do with you? Just three things to think about How in the world does this change you? What in the world does this have to do with you? Three things Here's number one you can be free. Because the question is, have you been set free by Jesus? <laughs> have you have you personally experienced him in a way where you've been set free by him? And a lot of you have. Some of you haven't. But the question, even if you have, sometimes there's this, this thing I want you to know. That sometimes you can be free but not feel free. Because you still feel keenly the power of sin in your life. You, you could tell me tonight about a struggle you've had for ten years and it doesn't seem to really go away. Or you can tell me tonight about a specific sin that you just can't seem to ever Overcome, repeat. And I think, you know, scripture gives this category that sometimes because we've been used to living under the power of sin, even as believers who've been set free, we still feel its power and it still threatens us. And still sometimes we listen to the old voice of our old master. Um, Unbroken, there's a scene at the end of Unbroken, the story of Louis greenie, And it's a story at the end where literally World War II has been won. But there are these POWs who have been li- living under the wrath of this Japanese, dick, this just angry, angry general called the Bird. And they finally – there's this beautiful scene in the book where they finally get news that, that America has won the war, that the war is over, that they're going to be set free. And there's this guy who's been, been a POW there for years and years and years, and he writes in his journal entry on the night that they find out the news, this news that the war is over and they are now free men. And he's settling down into his bunk, and he simply writes this. He says, what glorious news that we are now freed men, but as I settle into my bunk, it's a right, hard thing to do to believe that we are free because we've been living as POWs for years. What would I even do as a free man? And part of the Christian life is getting a vision of what you would look like freed, freer and freer and freer from sin. It's what Tim Keller calls your future glory self. What you're going to be like when Jesus, either when you die and go to be with him or when Jesus returns. You've got to get a vision of you free. And begin asking Jesus to give you more and more of the freedom that you already have that he already has won for you but you can make it a reality in your life number two you need friends who tell you the truth you need to be a friend that speaks the truth in love and you need friends that speak the truth in love to you and I don't mean like some of you are here and you're like I'm a tell it like it is person please please don't be a tell it like it is person right I mean no one likes to tell it like it is person just, no, just nobody I don't like think Jesus <laughs> that's not fair Jesus loves to tell it like it is person but he's working on them hard To humble them. But there's this idea that, I mean, like, don't be a tell-it-like-it-is person. Be a speak-the-truth-and-love person. Be someone who is not afraid. That you're willing to risk your friendship to speak the truth and love. That you're willing to to piss someone off. The way you know someone is a friend is they're willing to piss you off because they love you. Are you that kind of a friend? And do you have that kind of friends? Or do you surround yourself more with, like, fans? Where you're, like, kind of have a little fan club going of people who only ever tell you what you only ever want to hear, and no one ever says anything hard to you. Three, last one. There are beautiful and not-so-beautiful ways to use your freedom. Paul, really interestingly, in Galatians five thirteen says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Are you using your freedom well? Or are you using it selfishly? are you using it in a way that is life giving to others or are you using it in a way that is selfish and doesn't even think about others let me pray for us jesus we pray that you as we think about all these things that you would be the one who meets us in them that you would be the one who says what we need to hear that you would be the one as we get from this place or, or we know that your word you say uh, it's like seed that goes out into the soil and i pray that you would make our hearts a good soil we know that birds will come and take it away we know that rocks will come and check out the weeds. We know that there's so many things working against us for the, uh, the, the truth of your word to take root in our lives and hearts. And I pray as we leave this place that you would be the one who lets it settle deep, make our hearts good soul, soil, let your, the truth of your word settle in to our lives and begin growing things that need to grow there. And Lord, um, we pray that you would water, that you would be the one who gives the growth that we need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.